0: All of this is founded upon the covenant of redemption. That is, before times eternal, we're told in Titus chapter 1, verse 3, before times eternal, God swore to give eternal life to his people. That is, within the Trinity, before anything else ever existed, there was a covenant made between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit that the God would plan redemption, the Son would what? Accomplish redemption, and the Spirit would apply that redemption to his people. And here today, we talk about the person of that covenant, the mediator of that covenant. Now, as we think about mediators, right, um, there's probably several biblical themes and images that might come to mind. What are some that come to mind? Priests. Priests. Mediating. Before God. They would take the sacrifice that the person offered. The person himself would lay their hands on that animal, transferring symbolically their sins to the animal, and the animal would be sacrificed, symbolizing that the the animal has taken the wrath, the punishment of this person. The priest mediated for the people to God. There's prophets as well. And kings that mediated to their people. What are some specific examples of People that have names in the scripture that mediated. Moses. Moses is probably the primary one that comes to mind as he was the figurehead and the mediator of the old covenant. Okay, The old covenant, the Mosaic covenant. And I just want us to think briefly about that. The grace of God in giving a mediator to God's people. Even in the old covenant, even in the types and shadows of that old covenant. That a mediator would stand in between God and man. And Moses, maybe at the peak of it, we see him in Exodus chapter 32, after the people had made golden calves, had already broken the covenant that God gave them only 12 chapters earlier. And we see here Moses coming down, throwing down the tables, and then going up on the mountain and praying to God that God, if it be possible, have me blotted out from your book of life rather than these people. But as we think about that mediator, we should think about the grace of God to raise up Moses. In the middle of a hostile time, when Pharaoh was going about killing all of the baby boys in the kingdom, God preserved Moses. God had him trained up in the wisdom of the Egyptians in Providence. In Providence, he was sent away to Median and at a particular time called back And God worked through Moses to have great salvation for his people, right? And so when we think about Moses or anybody mediating in the Old Testament, we ought to think how great the grace of God is to to create a particular individual, to form him by providence in order that he would be an effective mediator between God and man. But when we think about Jesus as the mediator of the new covenant, it's I don't want to use the word unbelievable because we're called to believe it. But it is an astounding, mind-boggling truth that we are confronted with a mediator who is both God and man. 100% God 100% man. And that's what we're providentially looking at today in chapter 8 and verse 2. And notice how it sets it up. We, We saw last week that God the Father ordained a mediator... The Trinity agreed, now, with that background, listen. The Son of God, what does He mean by that? The second person of the Holy Trinity, being very an eternal God, the brightness of the Father's glory, of one substance and equal with Him, who made the world, who upholds and governs all things He has made, did when the fullness of time was come, take upon Him man's nature with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin. Being conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, the Holy Spirit coming down upon her and the power of the Most High overshadowing her, and so was made of a woman of the tribe of Judah." of the seed of Abraham and David, according to the Scriptures, so that two whole perfect and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion, which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. As you can see, that's a really dense statement, and we're going to try to get through it all today. Um, So... As we come to this, the outline that I have, uh, Sam Waldron, I think, was very helpful in outlining this. So first we have the subject of the Incarnation, then the time of the Incarnation, the essence of the Incarnation, that is, Him taking upon man's nature. Fourth, the mode of the Incarnation. How did the Incarnation happen? It's through the womb of the Virgin Mary. And five, the result of the Incarnation, the hypostatic union two whole perfect natures, God and man being joined together in one glorious person. Okay, So, as we consider, the first thing that we see and come across is the idea the subject of the incarnation is the second person of the glorious trinity. That Jesus Christ himself is the Son of God in the highest possible sense that we could ever think of it. When we read Peter, for example, confessing... In Matthew chapter 16 and verse 16, that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, it means something more than he was the Son of God, like Adam was. Even though Adam, as Joey has taught us in the past weeks, he was created as a sinless Son of God as well. But this is the Son that was eternally, is eternally begotten by the Father, is equal with him in every way. Now, to just draw upon the the weight of confessing this rightly. I would just have us turn to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. We confess these things. And the church has always confessed the, the very words that we have in front of us. You might notice that this is language that is found in Nicene Creed. That he is very God. Brightness of his glory. One substance and equal with him. And in 1 John chapter 5, I just want us to notice the weight of the words we find in verses 9 through 12. The Apostle John writes If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that He has borne concerning His Son, whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. There can be no doubt that the Apostle John is telling us that what we believe about Jesus Christ and his person matters for us Eternally, Not just intellectually. Not just what camp or what church we go to. It matters to us eternally what we confess about the Son of God in the Catholic Church. And I mean small c, Catholic. The universal church has always confessed that the subject of the Incarnation is the Son of God. Now, as we consider that, that He's the second person of the Trinity being very eternal God. The question that I have is, what makes the Son of God different than the other members of the Trinity? What can we say safely? Ms. Heather. He's begotten. We can say that safely. That He is the Son of God. The Scripture uses that terminology from beginning to end. And so we can safely say that the Son has a relationship with the Father that is somewhat analogous to an earthly relationship of a father and a son. And that the divine essence is shared through that begottenness, okay? But other than that, my point being, we can say nothing safely about the second person of the Trinity and the differences that exist there. Because the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, is very God. Now, I'd just have you turn back, if you do have a confession, to what our confession even teaches about who... God is, and we can apply all these things to Jesus Christ before, during, and after his incarnation in his God nature, okay, in his God nature. Notice the things that are said about God, and we can't read this whole thing, but we could, talking about Jesus, we see that he is infinite in being in perfection in paragraph one. His essence cannot be comp- comprehended by, by any but himself, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, who alone hath immortality in the light which no man can approach unto, who is immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, every way infinite, most holy, most wise, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will. Working all these things for His own glory. Who is most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin, the rewarder of them who diligently seek Him, and with all the most terrible in His just judgments, hating all sin, who will by no means clear the guilty. All of those things that we just listed can be said about Jesus Christ. And He came to this earth for men and for our salvation. He is very... God and Creator. And so we must say that when the Jewish people saw Jesus in John chapter 5, saw that He was, in their mind, breaking the Sabbath, healing on the Sabbath, and claiming to be the Son of God, they said, He makes Himself equal with God. But to say they were right about that. The Jewish leaders saw something that was true when they said that He's making Himself equal with God and we must confess those truths. What what are some clear scriptural statements that that show that Jesus Christ in his person is very God? Philippians. Philippians. 2, perhaps, yeah. Philippians chapter 2. We can turn there. And I know we've gone over this recently, but as you're turning to Philippians chapter 2, what I my my goal is to show you. That this Trinitarian theology that we've been discussing when we think of the Incarnation ought to have a, a particularly devotional impact upon us. That God so loved the world, He raised up a mediator, but not even a mediator as we consider great like Moses, but far greater, infinitely greater than Moses. Notice Philippians chapter 2, in verse 5, "...have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus." who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Okay? He was in the form of God and in the, the Greek morphe here. It's a philosophical term that he had all the, the glory of God coming to him. It's not saying that he just appeared to be God. I know that can come across. He had all the glory of God, but he didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped the hold of. Unlike Adam, who thought, I want the glory of God, and he reached out his hand to grasp a hold of glory by taking the fruit of the tree, Jesus said, My people and saving them is so important, I will not even grasp upon the thing that, that I deserve, the form of God. What other texts come to mind? Certainly. Yes, Miss Nancy. I don't know where it's found, but he said, I'm, He talks about him the line. Oh, yes, yes. Um, Uh, Yeah, John 17, John 14. Yeah, uh, he says to Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Right? John chapter 1. Perhaps the clearest text in all the New Testament comes to mind. John chapter 1. Exceedingly clear text. We see in this passage that the Apostle, at the very beginning, isn't that amazing? How... As American evangelicals, we put aside the doctrine of the Trinity as something unimportant... ...too intellectual, not really essential for us... ...because all that matters is how we feel about things. In John chapter 1, he starts by giving us Trinitarian orthodoxy. He says, in the beginning was the Word... ...and the Word was with God and the Word was God. Notice, he was in the beginning with God... ...that is, he has eternity with God... All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So he's not only the being of God, but he is also creator God and sustainer God. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. He does all of these things. I'll, I'll turn to just one uh, Romans 9. I think it was just this year that I, like, this verse popped out to me with such strength. Romans chapter 9. And verse 5, as Paul laments that the Jewish people do not believe in the Messiah that was sent, he says, About the Jewish people, to them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, notice what he says, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. No Jew would say that about somebody unless he meant the eternity, the, the absolute essence of God is here. Not a lesser God in some degree. Yes, brother? I was say, I like the exchange in John 8 as well. When we talk about Abraham being of Abraham, you can say Abraham, oh. Abraham. Yeah, and we can look at all the I am statements. It goes back to the ego me, in... Exodus chapter 3, where God at the burning bush said, I am. Jesus repeats that seven times in the Gospel of John to show that he is the same God that was there. And so, we're confronted, just because of time saved, we could dwell on this for a long period of time. Jesus is truly God, pre existent before eternity, had everything. Everything that makes God God, Jesus has in his eternal being. But the wonderful thing that we are considering today is that there is a moment of time which God joined to Himself the human nature. And notice that it says, when the fullness of time did come. This is really a direct quote from Galatians 4.4. It says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. There's a wonderful time whether it's December 25th or not, we don't know, But there is a wonderful time in God's eternal plan, a date marked on his eternal calendar, when the Son of God would be born into the world. He would be born into the world. And so we must consider from that that because there is an eternal God that has decided, even though he is separate from his creation in every way and infinitely far above it, decided to enter into it to some degree, by taking on a human nature, we, we have to consider well. When he took on a human nature, what does that mean? You know, throughout church history, there's been several explanations of this that are heretical. Um, Minosimons, Simons, for example, uh, founder of the Mennonite movement, said that he had a, a a glorified flesh or a heavenly flesh that was kind of a conduit for God. He didn't take on really our nature, but it kind of appeared like our nature. It was better than our nature. But the Orthodox throughout history have confessed that he took upon man's nature fully with all the essential properties. Well, what's, When we think about an essential property of a human, it's something that can't be taken away and that person still remain properly a human. Okay. Well, those are Things that not necessarily take place, so you still could be a human. Like, I can stop breathing for a second, you know. And I, I'm still considered a human. Uh, properly considered body and soul, okay? That a soul without a body, that body is not, if I died up here today, and you looked at my body, you don't say, that is Caleb Hackworth, Right? You, you would recognize that there's an essential element taking out that, that doesn't make that body equivalent with the person. okay? And the same thing even with the body. That's why we look forward to the resurrection because there's something unnatural in the separation of the soul from the body in the intermediate state that we're waiting for the resurrection of our body to be joined with our soul again because we were made as essential human beings to be body and soul. So, we can say with confidence that Jesus Christ not only took on a human body, but that that human body was not just something that was possessed by the Holy Spirit. He had a human soul. Right? He had a human soul. Now, to think about that, where do we where do we how do we know that Jesus had a human body? He ain't drank with the disciples. In him, the fullness of God is pleased to dwell bodily. Absolutely. Yeah, that's right. That's right. He, he took on the form of a servant, right? In the likeness of man. But we consider that Jesus Christ... Oh, brother. Yes. Yes. That's right. So human was Jesus. Unlike our common perceptions, he was not born into this world, and as the infant possessed in his human nature, omniscience, omnipotence. Okay? He grew in wisdom and stature. He grew in knowledge and favor with God and men. He ate and drank. And isn't this the point? Um, I believe it's in Luke. Um, maybe we should move on, but that's okay. We're already there. Luke, where He raises from the dead, and I actually believe it's in John, in his resurrection from the dead, he appears two Lord's Days in a row to the disciples one time, and then seven days later he appears where they're meeting together. And notice how Jesus proves himself to Thomas in verse 26 of John 20. Eight days later, the disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them, although the doors were locked. And Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put your, put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. In another account, we see Jesus Christ taking fish and eating it to prove that he's not just a spirit, but he is a true body. He's going to eat fish with these men. How do we know he had a true soul? A human soul. He grew in wisdom and stature, in favor with God and men. This is the the um, non-corporeal part of us that grows in wisdom. Yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't go there necessarily first. What what comes to mind Yeah, brother. Sorry, I was just gonna along those lines the, the prophecy is not abandon his soul to Sheol. That's exactly right. Yeah, amen. Yeah. Psalm 16, as quoted in Acts chapter 2 as well, he says, My soul you will not abandon to Sheol. Now, if Jesus meant the God nature, you will not abandon to Sheol, we would say, Well, that's just an absolute impossibility. Right? But Jesus, trusting God, he says, my soul, when it's separated from its body at the time of my death, my soul, my human soul, will not go to Sheol. When he's on the cross, what does he say to his father? He says, into your hand I commit my spirit. Right? Jesus Christ has a a real soul, and we, we, we have to move on, but to quote a couple of very relevant texts... Romans chapter 8.3, and I'm just going to read these. If you can get there in time, that's fine. Romans 8.3, For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. an account of sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. Hebrews 2.14 says this, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he may be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. So, that's where we really, the rubber hits the road. Why is it important that God, God the Son took upon Himself every part of what makes a human essentially human? Because He had to represent us. He had to represent us. A human being had to represent human beings before God's judgment. Or else He wouldn't be a true representative. It's analogous in some really meager way to the President of the United States, right? It would be foolish and, and silly for us to elect a President of the United States to somebody that's never been in the country and who was not a citizen of this country, right? In fact, it's illegal to do that. It's not possible. But there's a reason, because there has to be representation of the American people by an American person, Right? In a much bigger way, our sins must be mediated through a mediator that is truly one of us. If he did not have one of these essential properties, he could not be a true mediator to us. But he was made always like us, yet without sin. Okay, quickly, we see the, the mode of the incarnation. Okay, so how did this take place? We see that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, the Holy Spirit coming down upon her and the power of the Most High overshadowing her. And that's quoted, as many of you maybe read this morning as you woke up today, as we try to read through the Luke accounts on Christmas. Luke, chapter 1, we see that Mary is encountered by an angel of the Lord. Uh, We're just going to read it, okay? Verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he said to her, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at this saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, "'Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great and be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him a throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. In his kingdom there will be no end.' And Mary said to the angel, "'How will this be, since I am a virgin?' And the angel answered her, "'The Holy Spirit will come upon you.' And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child will be born and will be called holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month of her who was barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. We see here, first and foremost, the virgin birth being highlighted to us. And I think that we find something really peculiar in this passage, that the angel in announcing to Mary that she's going to conceive a son without any relationship with a man, he points to Elizabeth, right? And says, and and look at your your cousin Elizabeth, who was born in her old age, whom they said she was barren. Why would the angel say that to Mary at this moment? Grace for faith. Grace for faith? Yeah. To elevate Mary's faith even, right? That God is already doing something wonderful. And I think that when we look at the Old Testament with proper eyes, we see seven times, I believe, barren women giving birth. I think this is all typology and shadow pointing forward to the time when he would do something far greater through the virgin's womb in giving us a Savior. We see the Holy Spirit came down upon her. The power of the Most High overshadowing her. And if we're thinking about the Old Testament, that should remind us of another biblical creation story. That's the creation of the world. The Holy Spirit coming down and hovering above the waters. We get the same language in the creation of Jesus Christ in the womb of the Virgin Mary. The the seed of the new creation being formed in her here. And we also see He's made of a woman of the tribe of Judah, the seed of Abraham and David, according to the Scriptures. This is pointing back again to the covenant faithfulness of God. That he promised David, He promised Abraham, He promised the tribe of Judah that the Messiah would come through them and He certainly accomplished it through the virgin birth of our Savior Jesus Christ. Okay, lastly, the result of the Incarnation is that two whole, perfect, and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person. Okay, So, this is, if not the hardest doctrine in all of Christianity, it's at least the second hardest doctrine in all of Christianity, intellectually, to understand. The most difficult, I think, is the Trinity. And comprehending what the Bible reveals to us, that God is one essence in three persons. But here we see a man, a person, I should say, Having two distinct natures, two distinct natures joined together in one person. And this is, I'll just throw out a word, contrary to Nestorianism, okay? Historically, Nestorius taught, an early church teacher, um, a heresy that Jesus Christ, God and man really was two persons, not one person, but two people considered separately, but we also see it's without conversion, composition or confusion. Okay? So one error that we could make is saying that Jesus Christ is two people. Another error that we could make is he's one person, but the divine and the human natures are blended together in some way to make a third substance of some kind. That's neither divine nor human totally, but a mixture. We see this in Greek mythology, Hercules or or something like that. But Jesus Christ is not that. He is fully God, fully man. And these things we have gone through already. We've already proved separately that he's fully God and fully man. I want us to notice how these things are put together in Hebrews chapter 1. I think these two texts put it together well. Um, Hebrews chapter one. Here we see that the writer of Hebrews is trying to compile a bunch of Old Testament texts to prove that Jesus, the Son of God, is greater than the angels. okay And he says in verse I'm going to start in verse 6. We're going to be focusing on verse 8. And again, when He brings the firstborn into the world. So, again, we should be thinking, okay, He's not just talking about the eternal God nature here. He's talking about a person. Um, He says, let all the angels worship Him. Of the angels, He says, He makes His angels winds and His ministers flames of fire. But to the Son, He says... Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. This is the Father talking to the Son. And He says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprighteousness is the scepter of Your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, Your God, has anointed You with the oil of gladness above Your companions. And for time's sake, Romans chapter 10, I think it's another clear text, again, that shows... Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man, combined together here. Romans 10, 9. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, we have a bunch of human imagery there. You will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the Scripture says, everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Divine imagery. But notice the end of that verse 13. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Who's the Lord in this passage? It's Jesus Himself. He's one person. He's God. He's man. Fully and completely. But we also must recognize His singular personality. So, we have to guard against talking about Him as two people. And we see 1 Timothy 2.5 For there is one God and one mediator between God and man. The man, Christ, Jesus. Do we have any questions today? There's a a lot to go through in a small amount of time. Yeah, brother. I'm not claiming any sort of deity or anything, but the two natures, you know, as Paul says, that you know, we wrestle with you know, flesh and spirit, and I know mm-hmm. my experience, just give me a minute little insight to, to maybe what it's like two natures. Yeah, and, and that's, a, that's not a bad analogy. The Athanasian Creed... Um, it makes an analogy between a man's soul and his flesh. Even though they're separate, they're distinct, they make one person. Um, so that's not, a, that's not a bad analogy to think about. Even recognizing it is an analogy. right? Anything else? Okay, I'm going to pray for us. Lord God, we come before you and we marvel at the fact... That You came down into history. That divinity took on humanity. Humanity that sinned against Him. Humanity that broke the covenant. And You came down to keep the new covenant in our place. To offer freely grace to sinners like us, God. The incarnation is our only hope. And we thank you that you did it. You sent your son and that he now even sits in heaven praying, mediating for his people. And I pray that you would mediate your word to us today, Lord, and that you would help us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.